and I do appreciate you being here. You know, Saturdays are special. And uh, for you to give that up and come here to, uh, to learn a prayer, I think really honors the Lord. So, uh, so thank you. I think you've pleased his heart, you know, in, in, uh, in coming together. And I pray that it's, it's helpful uh, to you. I, uh, this, is, this is a topic that bothers me. I don't even like teaching on it in one sense. In another sense, I really enjoy it. But I did not want to teach on spiritual warfare. But I discovered years and years ago, when we first started Harvest Prayer Ministries, that if I was going to accurately teach on prayer, I had to deal with spiritual warfare. The trouble is, is whenever you deal with spiritual warfare, you're in it. You, you start facing the, the issues on more of an intense level. And so uh, I, I know what that's, what that's like. I, um, I started teaching this, you know, years ago and have continued to develop it and change and add and learn. And uh, eventually people asked me, would you, would you put this together, you know, in a book form for us? So the first book that I wrote out there is, is the one on prayer spiritual warfare. It's called The Devil Goes to Church. And uh, people get a kick out of the title sometimes, uh, but he does go to church, you know, more, more often than a lot of Christians, I'm afraid. I have to tell you, when the, when the book was first getting published, and it hadn't even been out there, but I had a, I had a big poster of the cover, and uh, I was meeting with a group of local preachers, and I showed them this, and they kind of chuckled at it, and then one of the guys said, you got a wrong title. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're missing a word. It needs to say, the devil goes to my church. You know? One of the guys said, yeah, and I know his name. <laughs> okay, guys, stop it, stop it right now. <clears throat> Ministers meeting sometimes, you know. I, uh, I've learned some things since, since I've written this, but a lot of the teaching that I want to share with you will be found in that, and I'm sorry I didn't think to bring more of them, but uh, there, are, there are some still left out there. I'm going to base what I say uh, kind of loosely on Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 18. We'll read that in just a, in just a few minutes. Um, I don't like to talk about spiritual warfare. I want to talk about Jesus. But if we're going to understand prayer, we must understand it from a biblical standpoint. And that is, there is a battle going on. And there is a very real war. And any time you're in prayer, you have moved to the front line. Which is one of the reasons why prayer is not the easiest thing you've ever done or ever will do. It's pretty intense. I love the way John Piper, one of my favorite authors, says. He said, until we know that life is war, we won't know what prayer is for. Until we know that life is war, we won't know what prayer is for. We'll have a tendency to look at prayer as kind of a nice spiritual thing that we ought to do. But when you understand the biblical perspective of warfare, suddenly prayer becomes your lifeline. You must have this. This is how you receive your, your marching orders from the Lord. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, 
mere Christianity says the, of this. So the New Testament is a story of how we live in a world that is under the dominion of a rebel. And it, it's a story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I love that. You know, there are people out there who think going to church is boring. I want to tell you, it's life-threatening. Now, we have brothers and sisters in Syria who could tell you that. But it has been that way for thousands of years, and you and I are living in a bubble that may not last very long. But we've, just, we've gotten used to things, and we've not paid attention to spiritual warfare. But it is happening today wherever we are. The Bible's very, very clear on that. There is a battle going on. Ephesians chapter 6 is probably the place where, clearer than ever, you see this issue of spiritual warfare. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and request. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. We are at war. The struggle we have is that the essence of this battle is in the invisible realm. It's in the unseen realm the invisible world of the spirit. And that's a tough thing for those of us who seem to be confined pretty much to the physical world. We have a real tendency to believe only in the things that we can, can see or hear or taste or touch or smell. The, the senses to us are what's real. But the Bible presents a whole different perspective. It's not mystical. It's not weird. It's simply the fact that there are two realms. A realm of the physical, the material, and the realm of the spirit that is invisible. One is not more real than the other. They're simply two different things. That's what the Bible teaches. One of my favorite stories found in the Old Testament, the book of Kings, 
It's the story, Second Kings, it's the story of the prophet Elisha. And uh, he was operating at a time when uh, the nation of Israel was in trouble. The king of the Arameans, which is much larger army, had decided to destroy the Israelites. He came against them. Well, the trouble for the king of the Arameans was that God was listening. And God told the prophet Elisha, who went and told the king of Israel. And he took his smaller army and moved it out of the way. No battle. Happened again. Same thing. God told Elisha. Elisha told the king of Israel. He moved his army. By this time, the king of the Arameans is really upset. He calls his generals together. He says, one of you is a traitor. You're telling my plans to, to the king of, the, of, of Israel. And he says, oh, no, king, it's not us. It's the prophet Elisha. He hears everything that goes on, even the things in the king's own bedchamber. Well, this upset the king of the Arameans. So he does the one smart thing that he could do. He sends his entire army after one man, Elisha. So the story opens with Elisha and his young servant in a hut in the village of Dothan. And uh, the young servant would get up that morning, typically would walk out to prepare a fire for breakfast for his master. He walks outside and he looks, and there surrounding the village of Dothan are the armies of the Arameans. Well, this upsets the servant. He comes rushing back in. He wakes up his master, and Elisha comes out, and he looks around himself, and he says something really, really strange. And he said, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And young servant has to be thinking, wait a second. One, two, one, two. What's he talking about? And then Elisha prays this interesting prayer. It's interesting for what he doesn't pray. He doesn't pray, oh, Lord, send angels to protect us. His prayer is this. Lord, open this young man's eyes. And if I could add on what I believe is intended, he was praying, Lord, open this young man's eyes so that he could see what is already there. Because you see, Elisha saw in the spirit the army of angels, literally angelic host, all decked out in armor, surrounding the army of the Arameans. I'll let you go home and read the rest of the story. I will tell you, no Arameans were harmed in the making of this story, by the way. <laughs> the interesting thing to me is this. Elisha saw what was already there, but that most of us typically do not see. Jesus operated the way Elisha operated. When you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus operated not in a mystical, weird way, with his feet firmly grounded in Scripture and the truth of God, he walked through this world a man of flesh who understood and responded to the spirit realm. And it was so very, very clear again and again and again in the life of Jesus that he saw 
that there was a battle going on that was bringing conflict from the spirit realm into the physical realm. It actually would start at the time of his birth. Scripture, it's interesting enough, people love as we come up close to uh, the, the time of celebrating the birth of Jesus. You know, we'll turn to Luke 2 and Matthew and different ones. We don't often turn to the nativity story in the book of Revelation. Uh, but the book of Revelation has a nativity story too. And it talks about the woman who gives birth and a great dragon who's there ready to swallow the child. And you go, whoa. All right, that, that, that is from the spirit perspective of what was happening at the birth of Jesus. And he had to get caught up and brought out to Egypt you know, while all of this spiritual battle was going on. See, in the physical, we only see a mean guy by the name of Herod. Okay? But in the spirit realm, we look and see behind Herod was the spirit of Satan, who was at work to destroy God's purposes on planet Earth. We're taught in Scripture to pay attention to what's going on in the realm of the Spirit. That may make you uncomfortable, but being uncomfortable is not bad if you're dealing with truth. You know, if it's something that's true, it's okay to be uncomfortable with it. I'm uncomfortable with it. I want that all to go away. It's not going to. You know, you can wish... You could wish that there wasn't such a thing as the a person as the devil and there was no spiritual warfare, but that doesn't happen. That doesn't change things. It's still there. Jesus walked in that sort of awareness. I think of his, um, what we call the, the temptations uh, in, in the wilderness. Jesus was fasting and praying. He fasted for 40 days and nights. And then scripture says this, and this is one of the funniest lines in scripture. And he was hungry. I love scripture. It's just so real. And he was hungry, and I wanted to go, duh. (laughs) Well, of course he was. And Satan came. And there are, as we know, at least three temptations. The fascinating thing with this is that Jesus responded to these direct attacks of Satan, not with supernatural signs and wonders, but with a clear-headed use of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. As Satan would come at him, his response was, the Word God has said. He responds to the attacks of Satan the same way you and I can respond to the attacks of Satan. He models for us the use of the sword of the Spirit to deal with the attacks of the enemy. Jesus walked through this world aware of the attacks of the enemy, aware of spiritual warfare, and we are called to walk in his steps. We must have that kind of insight or we become those who are destined to be tricked and deceived again and again by Satan. Jesus did not walk in fear or paranoia, but in awareness. I don't know how many of you had the, uh, the stamina, the guts, to uh, sit through the Passion of the Christ that was out a few years ago. Very tough to watch, very powerful. One of the things that I 
appreciated much about that was the portrayal of Satan. If you remember, Satan was always in the background, sneaking around. He's at the back of a crowd, and you'll suddenly see him look around. You'll see him there, just always there, always in the background, always, always agitating. And I really see that as a picture of the Gospels. You see that happening, and Jesus was aware of it. There was a, there was a time when uh, a woman touched his cloak and was healed. And, and Jesus said of this woman, she has been bound, she had been bound by Satan for 18 years, but now she's been set free. Jesus teaches that at least some illness, hear, hear me, some illness can be caused by Satan. You know, and he was aware of that. There was another time when uh, Jesus was set to head to Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed and killed. And he told the disciples that. Peter jumps up and says, Oh, no, Lord, we're not going to allow that to happen. Jesus turns to Peter and he said, Peter, he didn't, did he? He said, Satan, get behind me. Now, I know it was probably dark, a case of mistaken identity. Or was it? See, I don't believe for a minute that Jesus was calling Peter a name. No, no, no. He was addressing the spirit who was behind the words of Jesus, the one who was really there at that point in time, sneaking around the back. The others couldn't see him, but Jesus saw him or at least sensed his presence. We don't know what Jesus always was able to see while he was in the flesh, but he certainly knew he was there. And he recognized, once you get this, he recognized the words of Satan coming out of the mouth of one of his best friends. Now, by the way, if the apostle Peter could be tricked into speaking the words of Satan, Do you suppose it's possible that the same could happen to us? You see why Scripture is so clear, so, so adamant about being careful about the words we speak? I'm absolutely convinced, friends, that we have all been used by the enemy occasionally to speak out words that damage, that are actually what he want, the enemy wants us to say rather than what the Lord wants us to say. So we be careful. We learn to be careful with our words because it can happen to us. And then, have you noticed in Jesus' ministry how often, while he was teaching, the enemy would manifest himself typically in some sort of a demoniac, someone who had been controlled by Satan. And it interrupted the teaching. And every time Jesus handled it, though it was different circumstances, he still handled it essentially in the same way. Stopped teaching, he turned and dealt with the enemy, and then went right back to teaching again. Now I want you to hear this. Jesus did not have a deliverance ministry. Jesus wasn't out there trying to cast out demons. His job was to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if Satan had the audacity to interrupt him, he dealt with it. 
and then he went right back to the main thing. Now I say that because any time we're in the midst of teaching for an hour or so on spiritual warfare, there's always the danger that somebody gets too excited about this. I mean, seriously. They think, you know, their job is to now go hunt down demons. It's not. It's to proclaim the good news of Jesus. But you need to know what to do when the enemy stops you, tries to stop you, because he will. He has. And we need to know how to deal with that. And that brings us back then to Ephesians chapter 6. And this great teaching of Paul on how we're to pray. The interesting thing to me is that Ephesians 6 is set in the context of prayer. It's not just a teaching on warfare. It's all about prayer. And it's prayer from the perspective of a battle that's going on. So let me show you some things here that I think are very, very important. And I'm going to try to make this as practical, just as practical as we can here for us on on learning how to pray this way. First of all, the most important thing I can tell you on prayer and spiritual warfare is you must be aware. Folks, I'm as simple as I can get on, on teaching. And i got to tell you, it doesn't get any simpler than this. This is just two words. Be aware. I think I would be bold enough to say this. 90% of spiritual warfare is awareness. Just paying attention. Most of you got up this morning and did not give any thought whatsoever to the fact that you were in a battle. That you woke up on a battlefield. That there was a war going on around you. Most Christians go through the day totally unaware. Shocked then when bad things happen. Unawareness is dangerous. A soldier who does not know he's at war is a much easier target. Some of you uh, have been in the military. Some of you may have been even in the midst of battle. Let's, let's, Let's picture for a minute this imaginary small troop of men. Pick your war. Go to World War II or Korea or Vietnam or Iraq. Whatever whatever war. Maybe the streets of Paris. And uh, let's just see a group of soldiers here, small troop, who wake up one morning and they forget that they're on a battlefield. I mean, these guys have been on the front lines. There's been war going on and stuff, but they forget. They wake up, it's a beautiful day, and they say, you know, what a great day for a picnic. And, and so they kind of gather some things together. They, they leave their helmets off. They leave their guns laying aside, and they kind of take off looking, looking for a place for a picnic. Now, understand, nothing has changed. There are still planes flying overhead. There's still bombs dropping. There's still bullets coming by. Every now and then, one of them gets hurt. You know, and the others go, how, how could such bad things happen to such good people? Have you heard that one? Only unaware people ever say such things. So you, you look at that story and you say, Dave, those, that, that's, a, that's a silly story. Those are soldiers with, 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 with mental problems. 
I rest my case. I'm sorry, but that's where most of the church is. Word of God is clear. You're in a battle. Now, you can argue with God if you want and say, no, we're not. I choose to simply line up with the Word of God and say, we are in a battle. Our job is to be aware. Pay attention. You know, we don't get to vote on it. You know, this is not a game. You can't take your ball and go home. I don't like, I honestly have heard people say, Dave, I don't like to think about spiritual warfare. My answer is, so? It doesn't change anything by not thinking about it. It simply puts you in greater danger. Not walking in fear, not walking in paranoia, but in awareness. So we begin to discern the enemy's attacks, what he's doing. Be aware. Number two, put on the armor. Now here's what I would say to you. There is no easier way that I know of to walk in awareness and protection and victory than on a daily basis to put on the armor of God. Remember, this is in Ephesians 6, set in the context of prayer. I believe, I believe that we have full permission from the Lord on a daily basis to put on the armor of God. It's interesting, we sing it, we don't do it. Remember the, the old hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus? Third verse says, put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. But do we do that? So, my habit, it's a habit. I've, I've trained myself in it. Every morning when I get up, I am one of these guys who, I have to have a shower in the morning. I am not yet quite human until, until I have a shower. And so, uh, in the shower, every morning, water hits me and it reminds me, I need to put on my armor. And it's okay to do that in the shower. It's rust-proof armor. And, and so I, there, there's, no, there's no ritual here. There's no magic words. There's no right or wrong way to do it. I simply, Lord, today I, I thank you for your armor. I put that on by faith. Some days I go through the whole thing. Lord, today I put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of peace. I take up the shield of faith uh, and the sword of the Lord, your word. You know, I, it's, it's a very simple thing. I teach first graders to do this. One of the reasons why I believe the Holy Spirit gave the whole idea of an armor to, to, to Paul, and then it's actually you see it in other places in Scripture, is that it's such a simple picture for us to realize we put this on. Now, if 90% of the battle is awareness, then let me tell you, the way God has given us to walk in awareness is the armor. You see, when you put that armor on every morning, you immediately move into awareness that there's a battle going on today. You don't put on armor to go on a picnic. You put on armor because there is a battle ahead. Maybe you're right in the middle of it even then. Obviously, it doesn't necessarily mean the shower. For It's just the first thing. You ought to do this. One of the first things in the morning is to put on the armor of God. Now, I have literally, honestly, been approached by people in full honesty saying, Dave... Um, 
I don't need to do that. I put on the armor once. I don't need to do that anymore. And my response is, great. I'm so glad for you. As for me, I need that every day. I, I have a tendency to forget. How about you? And, and I believe that putting on the armor on a daily basis is a wonderful way to remind myself that I've got to be aware there's a battle going on. Can I tell you the second reason why, though, for me, it's important to do this on a daily basis? Do you realize that every piece of the armor corresponds to Jesus? Every piece of the armor. The helmet is the helmet of salvation. Jesus' very name, Jesus, means God is my salvation. That's his, his name, his salvation. He is our righteousness. He is the truth. He is the prince of peace. He's the shield of faith that goes before us. According to John, he is the word of God. See, every part of the armor corresponds to Jesus. Now, you know what the book of Colossians tells us is that we are to put on Christ daily. How do you do that? I mean, that's a serious scripture command, right? Put on Christ daily? How do you do that? I'm sorry, I've got to tell you, most of you don't. It, I mean, it's just one of those commands that we look at and go, that's nice, I believe that. And then we don't do anything about it. But it's, it's an active command to do, to put on Christ. I put on the armor. It's Christ. I am putting on the armor. I'm putting on Christ. I'm being clothed with Christ. And Scripture talks about that being daily. You know, every day I need that. Every day there's a new battle. There, there are new struggles. There are things we need to face. And I need His power, His strength, His presence in me continually. And those are the sort of things, because of the type of people that we are, is that we must remind ourselves daily. I love the Old Testament scripture in Nehemiah. His, Your mercies are new every day. I need every day. You know, scripture again and again and again talks about going back to God every day as a daily sort of thing. Yesterday was not sufficient for today. You know, I have to put on the armor on a daily basis. I say that for me. I strongly encourage you. I believe it does so much for you. Now, let me tell you what putting on the armor does not do. It does not take you out of the battle. Now, that's a silly statement, but people somehow think, you know, I started putting on the armor of God and things got worse. I said, well, of course. You're a danger now to the enemy. You know, God's going to start using you in greater ways, which means you're going to find yourself in some more significant battles. No one puts on the armor to just sit around. We are ready for battle. And so we walk about clothed with Christ and ready to be used by him in powerful ways. So, so it doesn't take you out of the battle. It doesn't keep you from sin. Oh, I wish I could tell you that it did. But putting on the armor does not keep you from sin. You still must make decisions every day to hold on to the righteousness of Christ and to live accordingly. The armor helps you in the midst of this. 
It provides a protection, and only the Lord understands the full extent of that. I cannot begin to tell you how, how the armor protects you in every way. What I'm saying to you is, according to Scripture, God has provided some protection for you. Why would you not take it? What, what, what sort of arrogance would we have that says, no, thank you, I don't need that. I'm guessing that if the Lord said, here, this is for you, I'm going to take that. And consistently, every day of my life, I'm going to put on the armor of God to stand clothed in his strength. Put on the armor of God. And then, and here's where I'm going to spend the bulk of our time and how to pray. We must understand the nature of our enemy. See, to me, the practical steps you got to be aware. you got to put on the armor of God. And then you have to be aware, understand the nature of our enemy. Paul is very, very clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Now, you know what that means? There's nobody out there on this planet that is your enemy. Not really. They may be doing the enemy's bidding. They may, in fact, be taken over by evil. Those who carried out those attacks in Paris yesterday were absolutely under the control of Satan. I will tell you, radical Islam is a front line of Satan's attack against the kingdom of God. Okay, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that after, after lunch. We, we really will. We're going to get into some very, very practical things about what we're dealing with today. I hope I just hooked you. But we need to understand that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Again, they could be being used by the enemy, but there is a force behind them, and that force actually comes down to an individual that the Scripture calls Satan or let me see if I move this out here and put it on here. Maybe it'll help. I don't know. We'll, we'll try anything here. I am not going to spend hardly any time talking about where the devil came from. And the reason is, is it is speculation. Now, some of you are surprised by that because you think you know. I think I know too, but I only think I know. And I'm, I'm saying this on purpose because I want to give you a little teaching that's important. I think, I think that Satan probably was an archangel who because of pride rebelled against God and in the process took a third of the angels of heaven with him and they were cast out of heaven and are now the devil, Satan, the adversary, and, and his demons. You say, well, isn't that what the Bible teaches? That's what the Bible implies. Okay, that's what it implies. There, there are passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel 
that imply this. I think it's a fairly strong case, but nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Now, the reason I'm making such a point, not so much to talk about the devil as to talk about the way we deal with each other and biblical doctrine. We need to make sure we give great grace to one another in the areas in which the scripture is not absolutely clear. And sometimes we think something's clear, but it's really not. Some of you thought that you know exactly where the devil comes from. And I'm telling you, I believe what I just said. I think that's what scripture implies. But it doesn't say that. And we need to be people who are very, very careful that we speak where the Bible speaks, okay? That we're very clear on those areas. And areas where it's unclear, we give great grace to people who have different positions. That's very, very important because Satan will use that to divide us. And so we fuss about second coming things. I was on a a, a Christian church Facebook page of preachers here a couple months ago. I just, I got so frustrated. I just had, because the, the, what was going on there, they were talking about a particular view of the second coming that's actually fairly popular of uh, uh, what we call dispensationalism. And uh, it was, a, according to them, a heresy. And I pushed back and they said, oh no, it is a heresy. I said, it might be wrong, but it's not a heresy. But boy, I got hammered. I got hammered. I just backed off. Because see, that's the sort of thing that says areas of, that there's some, some uncertainty, areas that you could, you know, I could argue, I, I could stand up in front of you biblically and argue three or four different views of the second coming. Biblically. Show you why they're all true. Sometimes I think God did that on purpose. Just, just to make us humble and, and help us to, to be where he's in charge. We only think we know things. But I say this about Satan simply to understand that the Bible seems to imply that this is a, a created being gone wrong. Not God. Not, not an opposing God. A created being. And Paul makes it very, very clear that what we're dealing with is not simply a force of evil, but personalities. He uses terms, rulers, authorities. Now, he obviously is not talking about human governments here because he just said our battle's not against flesh and blood. So, so understand that Jesus got, his, got it right when he looked at Peter and heard these words and say it, it wasn't Peter. It was someone behind him who was giving Peter those words. Doesn't mean Peter still didn't have a responsibility for what he said, but the source, the source was from Satan. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Speaking of Satan, he says, now we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. So I want you to hear this for just a minute. Paul writes, and he said, we're talking about a person, yes, a spirit person, but a person who has schemes or plans. Satan has 
a strategy, if you will. This is not simply, again, this, the, the, the weirdness of Star Wars with a, a force that is out there. This is not a force. This is not a dark side, light side, anything. This is an individual of evil who has plans and strategies. Paul calls them schemes. Now, here's what he says that's important for us today. And we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Now, I say that to you because if you're to walk as a person of prayer and walk in victory, you must line up then with Paul's statement that we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Now, the truth of the matter is, I find that much of the church today is totally unaware of Satan's schemes. We have no idea what he's up to. So, what I'm going to do for the next few minutes here is teach you what those schemes are. <laughs> and uh, I, this is just from Scripture <laughs> and some personal experience, but <clears throat> Satan still has the same schemes that he's used for many, many, many years. He's in a rut, but it's a good rut. It works well. He's deceived us. He's divided us. He's destroyed. And so there's no reason for him to change. But what that does is allow us to understand what he's up to, what his strategy is, and then pray against that and live against that. What I'm going to focus on here particularly relates to the church. But that obviously is going to carry over into your own life as an individual as part of the church. But I want to deal, especially as we deal with the, the church together, and I know we're several different congregations, but this becomes, I think, very, very important. <clears throat> Satan's battlefield, more than any other place, is the church. Christians don't often understand that. They think in terms of Satan's battlefield, his main attack being, you know, off with ISIS and or places of evil here, uh, places of, of, you know, where people are coming together, houses of prostitution and great gambling and evil. And those are places of darkness where Satan really, that's where he's attacking. I want you to, to know that Satan probably doesn't even bother to show up at any of those places. He goes to church. Here's where his enemy is. We're the only ones on planet Earth capable of standing against Satan. He doesn't mess with other things. That's already his territory. Why would he bother? He comes to church. And with the church, there are four areas of battle. Doubt, deception, discouragement, and division. Those four areas, doubt, deception, discouragement, and division. Let me look at these real quick. Sometimes we do a long, long, long teaching on this and go for a couple hours. <clears throat> Relax, we're not, okay? But, uh, but I do want to make sure we cover this and, and, and really are able to, to, to walk out of here with some real tools in, in dealing with it. Most of all, simply being aware the first weapon of Satan, the first attack, is an area of doubt. He works hard. 
against our faith, and he wants us to doubt. The trouble is, is we often not only acknowledge doubt, but almost encourage it. I mean, I, I literally hear in church people saying kind of lightheartedly, oh, it's okay, we all doubt sometimes. As though that makes it okay. And yet scriptures speak strongly against doubting. So who are we to then somehow open the door to the enemy to come in and say, oh, that's okay. If you've got doubts, no problem. Everybody doubts. That's like saying, it's okay to sin. Everybody sins. No, it isn't. Let me show you some ways that he gets us to doubt. doubt he, he, he did this from the very beginning. And he gets, gets us, first of all, to doubt the Word of God. That's, that's, the, that's the clearest attack of Satan, to get us to doubt the authority of the Word of God. He's done this from the very beginning. And when I say the very beginning, I mean the very beginning. It was in the garden. And the serpent comes to our forefathers and says this, Has God really said Do you hear that voice? My friends, the very same voice. Let that sink in. The very same voice is saying those very same words today in the church. Has God really said is the Bible really accurate? Is it really what God said? You know, there are whole groups of Christians, followers of Jesus, who have given up on the Word of God. They uh, play games with Scripture. They will... Uh, they will say, for instance, in, in one particular fellowship, says, um, the Bible contains the Word of God. Now, see, that sounds good until you pay attention to what they really said. They didn't say the Bible is the Word of God. It contains the Word of God. Somewhere in the midst of all these words is the Word of God. Your job is to figure out what does God really said in here. You see that? See how dangerous that is? Then you just pick and choose the parts that you like. Has God really said? Now you say, that's not us. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Yeah, we do. Unless we disagree with it. Unless we find passages that don't fit us. If we're not careful, we can allow our own traditions to make us a bit like Thomas Jefferson. I, I really love Thomas Jefferson, but he had a very, very unusual faith. You can see a copy of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. He took scissors to it, and he cut out all the miracles because he did not believe God stepped in and did miracles. And see, if we're not careful, we would never, ever take our scissors to the Bible, but we do have a tendency to take our markers and cross them out the things that we don't like. I, uh, 
I have become, the older I get, the more I study the Word of God, more and more conservative. Now, it's interesting because my conservatism would cause people to disagree with me even more. I'm unwilling to cross out passages of Scripture. I must deal with them. Not in an artificial way, but I cannot simply cross out Scripture. Now, I will give you a controversial example. And I don't mind controversy because I'm leaving tomorrow. Again, you don't, you don't have to agree with me, I think, but this, I'm just giving you an example of why I would say I'm conservative, but it upsets people. I was taught, uh, as most of our preachers are taught, that uh, uh, the nation of Israel has, the modern nation of Israel has nothing to do with Israel in the Bible, that it is kind of an aberration, has nothing to do with prophecy or anything else. That's just what we were taught. And I have had to reject what I was taught because of Scripture. I, I was just reading again that, that passage in Jeremiah 31 that I read to you. Uh, simply doesn't allow me to believe that anymore. It, it's a prophecy to the land itself saying, I will rebuild you, Jerusalem. I will do this. And you will never again fall from my favor. You know, we can argue and we have different beliefs and stuff, but I'm just one of these ones. I've just, I'm not going to try to make excuses for the word, even if it doesn't fit into my theology. You know, that becomes uncomfortable sometimes. But there's, I believe we're at a point in time where there's going to come increasingly great deception into the church. And we have to be a people who just firmly hold on to the word of God and say, I believe that God has said this. I may not always understand it. It may not always fit into my carefully planned out things, but I am not going to discard the Word of God. And so in prayer, we become a people who hold on to faith, and we pray that continually. You know, we pray continually, Lord, help me to be a person of your Word, you know, who believe what you said. Help me to live that way and to understand that and to take my life and subject it to the authority of your word, not the other way around. Now let me show you one other area of what I would call huge attack of doubt. And that is against the love of God. There's a huge attack by Satan on God's love. Everyone here has heard the voice of Satan. Sometime or the other, the thought has come in. How could God love you? You know what you've done. You, you know the thoughts that have been in you. You know, you know the things that have been there. How, how could he love you? And, and even when you kind of fight about that, you'll almost hear this thing of saying, well, okay, maybe generically he loves you, but he doesn't like you. You know, we hear that. It's a continual sort of thing. And I want you to hear what it is. It is an attack against the very nature of God. Because according to Scripture, God is love. 
His love is absolutely beyond our comprehension. It is a supernatural sort of thing that we cannot comprehend apart from revelation. We cannot know it merely by our intellect. It is a phenomenal sort of thing that is to be embraced and believed regardless of the lies of the enemy. It is a love that is not dependent upon our activity. And that's hard for us to believe because that's not the way we are. But he's different from us. We'd all agree on that, wouldn't we? Listen to the way he gets down. He comes against the word of God and the very nature of God. Scripture and God's love. And we are a people who begin to recognize that. And we will not fall for that. We pray issues of faith for one another and for ourselves. We pray issues of faith, not doubt. We stand on the Word of God and on the character of God that loves us. Doubt will not succeed where people are praying according to the Word of God. The second attack of Satan is an area of deception. <clears throat> Scripture literally says, again, Satan deceived Eve. He is a liar. Jesus, who knew Satan, I believe, before he fell, said he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. And obviously, there's a, a, a lot of lies that go on with Satan. He, he is the author of a lot of false doctrine, a lot of lies that the church believes increasingly today. I, I, I fear, I should not use the word fear, not to fear, but I, I certainly have great concern over the direction of the church and areas of how, how easily we give up our belief in what God has said and how quickly we embrace the lies of Satan. I'm greatly concerned about that, but let me tell you what I believe is a far greater deception. To me, the great deception, and I have to tell you this, every one of you has fallen for this, and I have too. It is a deception that is absolutely epidemic, endemic in our churches. It is everywhere, in every church I've ever been in. So, do I have your attention yet? It's really very simple, but it is so deceptive. What Satan has done with astonishing success is to get Christians to confuse hearing the Word of God with doing the Word of God. It happens every Sunday in every church. We hear the word and feel as though we have now done our part because we've heard and maybe even agreed, but it doesn't carry over into action. Let me give you an illustration that, that's happened to me. Even though I'm very aware of this, it's really one of the things I'm really, really watching for, and yet it still happens to me. I'll go to some conference somewhere, and I hear this great speaker and I walk out of there and I'm going, wow, that was great. I feel great. 
Why? Because I agreed with him. I haven't done anything different. All I did was agree. But you see, I feel good with that. So what typically do I want to do? So, so when's that guy speaking again? See, what do I want to do? I want to go hear more. N- not do more. Not go take what he said and do it. I want to go hear more. My friends, listen. Our churches everywhere. This, don't hear it as a criticism. It's just an observance I think you'll agree with. We're set up for the deception. Look at this room. What do you do when you come in here on Sunday morning? It's set up for you to listen. Actually, anything else is pretty much out of line. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just telling you we're set up for this. And we've made it easy for Satan to deceive us. Churches, basically, we look and say, well, how many did you have Sunday? Well, what did we ask? How many were there to listen? We didn't ask how many lives were changed. How many were there listening? Do you understand what the deception that is? Friends, the deception can happen here today. So you can hear stuff. You go, oh, you know, that was a real, really good stuff. What do you do with it? What changes? How you pray differently tonight based on what we do here? We embrace truth in prayer. We hold on to truth. We become people who insist before the Lord that we become doers of the word and not just hearers. And so when we hear on Sunday, when you hear the word of God proclaimed, you know, your question before the Lord is, Lord, what would you have me do? You see how you pray differently? You begin to pray differently. Lord, I heard a message. What do I do differently now? How do I respond to your word? One of the things I love about my home church, I don't get there very often. I'm on the road most of the time. But when we're done with our sermon, we have an extended worship and prayer time. Uh, our, our, Our worship is after the sermon. And our preacher will say at the end of every message, here's some things to be praying about. And then we have communion set up around the room so that people have to get up. And most of them end up coming down front and just spending a short time praying and then back to their seats. And it's happening while we're worshiping. I'm not saying that's the way to do it. I'm just saying that's one one way that we have chosen to encourage people to pray about what they've heard and put it into practice. Don't just be a listener. That's deception. And the enemy will do whatever he can to get you to be a spectator just a listener. Here's the third one. One of the greatest weapons of the enemy is discouragement. 
he tries very, very hard to steal our courage. That's what discouragement is. It's to steal courage. Jesus also said of Satan, he is, he is a thief. He comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. One of the things that Satan steals the most from Christians is their courage. We need courage to live this life in the midst of a battle. I love that, I love that passage early on in Joshua where, where God says to Joshua and then Joshua turns to the people, be strong, be courageous. If you're going to win the battle that's out there, you're going to have to have courage. And I want you to hear that we're going to have to have courage to live this life in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus. And we're going to need more and more in the future. And our churches and our assemblies are intended to be times in which we give courage. That's called encouragement. One of my favorite passages of Scripture as a young preacher was Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. I only quoted the first half of it, but I used it pretty much as a weapon to beat people over the head with the Bible. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. You know, basically I was saying, you need to be there. You need to be at church. We're there together. You need to come together. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But I didn't share the last part of that. But rather, encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, what Scripture teaches is this beautiful picture of the church coming together to give courage to one another. See, in a very real sense, when we come together, it's the sort of thing where we're going, here, here, have some courage. Have some courage. Would you like some courage? We give courage to one another so that we go out from here strong and ready to be the church. But you know what Satan does? He knows that one of our purposes of coming together is to give courage, and so he actually uses the church to do the opposite, and we steal courage. We discourage. Friends, we just got to get real. A lot of times our assemblies are places of discouragement. I'm, I'm, I'm not telling stories that you don't know. But I can go anywhere around my hometown and find people who used to be at this church but not there at this church because they got discouraged at this church. And then they tried that church and then they're not there. And pretty soon they're just not going at all. Or, or there are people in an individual congregation who used to be a Sunday school teacher. They used to be a youth group sponsor. They used to do this, but there was some criticism here, some grumbling over here. It didn't quite go right here. Satan stole their courage, and pretty soon they're just showing up occasionally. Come on, you know people. You can put names to those stories. You may have been one from time to time in your own life. Satan uses other Christians to do his work of stealing courage. Don't let it happen. We are to be those who give courage. And I'll tell you the way this works is as you are praying, you begin praying 
for brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the things that you read in that Ephesians chapter 6 passage at the very end, you need to pray for all of the saints. How many of us, how many of us are obeying that scripture? How many pray every week for your own fellowship? You know, how many are praying for all the saints? I see Paul passionately praying for the church because the church is the battleground. And he understands that Satan is going to come in like a thief. He's going to steal courage. And we need to be speaking words of encouragement and praying encouragement, courage into people's lives. The fourth D, the last one, is division. I mean, you knew that was coming. Wow, has Satan ever done a number on us in division, in dividing us? You know, one of the things that you'll see in spiritual warfare, if you want to see what the devil is doing, look and see what Jesus is doing, and Satan does the opposite. So when I read John chapter 17, just a cursory, superficial reading of John 17, that great prayer of Jesus, shows he was passionate about you and I being one. He was passionate about Christians having a supernatural unity, that they would be one Father as we are one. I mean, that's amazing that Jesus would pray those kinds of prayers. That's how passionate Jesus was about unity. So what you need to know is as passionate as Jesus is about unity, Satan is as passionate about disunity, about division. And he'll do whatever he can to divide us. Now sometimes he uses more serious issues. There's some issues of church doctrine that have divided us. I have found that because someone goes to a church with a different name and even a different set of beliefs does not mean I have to be divided from them. I can love them. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I can love them. I cannot allow division. I don't have to allow something to divide us, even though we're in different buildings. We can overcome this. What really bothers me is the way Satan uses the little things in individual congregations to divide us. We fuss and fight. Music? I don't suppose any of the churches represented ever had any fussing over music. Can you imagine anything more diabolical, and that's from the devil, diabolical, than to get Christians to divide and to fuss over how to worship God? Wouldn't it be much better to allow anything other than division? Man, I could tell you story after story. I got to tell you this one, though. When I was, uh, and by the way, I want you to know that uh, issues of worship does not mean that there's one side that's right and one side that's wrong. Uh, what I have discovered 
is that uh, virtually all of those sides are wrong. I mean it. I, I'm, in, I'm in churches that, uh, that ignore their older members completely. They have no interest in ever singing a hymn. And I'm going, what point are you trying to prove for that? And then there are others who are going to fuss over any use of a, of a drum or, or a guitar, fuss about anything that was written in this century. The attitude that I like best happened, <clears throat> I was preaching at a church over in Kansas, Illinois, back in the early 80s. And uh, we began to add a few innovations. We had a guitar. We had a few choruses. Now, if you remember back to the 80s, those were pretty simple, nice, soft, quiet choruses, nice little praise choruses. But they weren't hymns. And this was a 100-year-old church, and uh, it was not a major thing. It really wasn't. But it was an issue for a few. And I will never forget, one day, I had finished preaching. We'd had a few choruses. I was standing at the door, shaking hands. And uh, a dear lady, an older saint, lived close to me, was a dear friend. Dear, dear friend, I will see her in heaven. But she was a very stern woman. And she came out with her stern face on. And she grabbed my hand and she said, I don't like that new music. Something like that. And I said, thanks for sharing. (laughs) And she stormed out. There was a lady behind her, older than her, probably in her mid-80s. And she heard that. And she stepped up to me and grabbed my hand and then she drew me close so no one else could hear. And she said this, I'll never forget it. Dave, I don't much like that new music either. But you keep it up. My grandson loves it. What a godly response. She didn't really like it. She didn't have to like it. But she was more interested in her grandson than her own preferences. Now understand, this goes both ways. It sounds like I'm taking a side for, for newer stuff. I would say the same thing for those who are ignoring the grand hymns of the past. You know, I'm, I know I'm treading on dangerous ground here. I don't mind it. I just want you to understand that Satan will use anything from the color of the carpet to the time of your worship service to how you structure your Sunday school to anything to divide Christians. Now, I want to show you a simple way to deal with this in your own life. And I mean this. This is, this is a surefire cure. Because every one of us can find ourselves critical sometime or other, can we? Everybody nod. You know, we can all find ourselves critical. There's things that happen in every church we don't like. I'll, ne- I'll never forget what Ben Merrill, one of my heroes, said uh, when he was in his 80s and preaching, and he said, well, back at my church, I tell them if I walk in there on Sunday and don't find six things I don't like, we're doing something wrong. 
And he said, at my age, I better find some things I don't like. And, and I love that. I, lo- I love that attitude. But I want to tell you how, how we can avoid division. Learn to pray with Jesus. Learn to pray with Jesus. Look at John 17 as your example. And say, Lord, I want what you want. Lord, would you make me as passionate as you are about unity? Lord, help me to live in a way that demonstrates what it means to be one with my brothers and sisters. And I will tell you from personal experience that what will happen in you over a period of time is you will find yourself so committed to what Jesus wants that you would rather die than doing anything that creates division. Doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything. I hope not. There will be things that you don't like, but you will have an attitude of Christ that says what I want more than what I want is what you want. I want to see the church walking together in unity. Learn to pray with Jesus. Now, the last thing that I would tell you is this. All this was under this category of, of understand the nature of the enemy. And before that, we, we talked about th- there's three steps so far. Be aware, put on the armor of God, understand the nature of the enemy. And here's the last thing quickly, is to understand the nature of our victory. We must understand the nature of our victory. Our victory is not simply in praying better. Our victory is Christ himself. You see, the Bible does not teach dualism. Dualism is a view of the universe in which there are these two equal opposing things, good and evil, dark and light, struggling for control. Oh my, I wonder who's going to win. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God, creator of all things. Nothing has ever been in doubt as to how we'll all end out. And the Bible presents Satan as a created being far, far below who God is. As a matter of fact, there is such a distance between who God is and who Satan is that I would suggest to you today that God cannot defeat Satan. Are you hearing me right? There's such a disparity between who God is and who Satan is that God cannot defeat Satan as God. He's too big. Satan's too small. I'll give you the illustration. Let's just suppose, let's just suppose that uh, this, this cocky little ant comes along the podium here. And this ant comes up to me and challenges me to an arm wrestling contest. Okay, you got the picture? I cannot defeat that ant at arm wrestling. I'm too big. 
He's too small. Now, I, I could. I could just <laughs> smash him. But I can't defeat him at arm wrestling. Unless, of course, I became an ant. See, that's exactly what the Creator did. The Creator took on human flesh. The unimaginably big became a baby. And as a man, on the cross of Calvary, Satan was defeated forever. And that's our victory. It isn't us at all. That's the reason why prayer is so important. It's simply staying connected to the one who already won. Dwight L. Moody, one of my heroes, tells a story <clears throat> of a young man who fell and uh, broke his back and neck as, while still a young man. He was confined to bed for the rest of his life, paralyzed, in a great deal of pain. And yet Moody shared that whenever I visited this young man's bedroom, it was as though I was as near heaven as could be while on earth. He had such a love for God, and he said, I love to go and visit him because of what was happening in his life. He said, one day when I was there, I asked the young man if Satan ever, ever attacked him or caused him to get discouraged. And the young man said, oh, yes, it happens often. I'll be laying here in bed and I'll look out through the window and I'll see young people my age going by in perfect health and Satan will whisper to me, how could God love you and allow such a thing to happen? And Moody said, well, what do you do when you hear Satan say that? And the young man said, oh, he said, I just take him to Calvary. I show him his hands and his feet and his side and I say, doesn't he love me? And he says, the truth is, Mr. Moody, Satan got such a scare there 2,000 years ago that he leaves me every time. You see, that's what we do in prayer. We drag him kicking and screaming to the cross. And that's our victory. And our job's really simple. Jesus described it as saying, I'll, I'll be the vine, you be the branch. Just stay attached. And that's how... That's really what prayer is. We stay attached, and the life of the vine flows through us, and we walk in victory. Thank you for your attention. We're going to, uh, to bring this to a close. I, I, I'll stand out here for a little bit. We have some books and things. I'm going to sit and eat. Trust me, I will. Let me, let me say something here in closing. Um, we have a ministry that has been going for 23 years. Uh, we've, I, I'm so excited now. We, uh, Kim and I just came off of a three-month sabbatical this summer, first time in 41 years of ministry, and we're just kind of re-energized for the next, if the Lord tarries for the next 15, 20 years to, to really see a lot of things happen. I want to carefully word this and say this. Uh, first of all, I want to tell you, uh, I believe Christians that your first place to give your tithe is to your church. You know, you need to make sure you're doing that. If the Lord opens the door for you sometime...
to be able to help out with the prayer ministry.